Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. I'm honored today to welcome Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons of the United Kingdom, to join us here at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. I think you're the 158th Speaker of the House of Commons, although the origin of that role with a different title stretches back to the year 1258. So welcome, Mr. Speaker. Welcome to all of you who are here and all of you who will see this discussion on Zoom or hear it on our podcast, The Bully Pulpit. I'm going to ask questions for about 45 minutes and then turn it over to you folks. Mr. Speaker, it famously took Kevin McCarthy 15 ballots to be elected Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. You were elected Speaker of the House of Commons on the fourth ballot with a thumping majority of 215 votes. Let me ask you, how different are those two elections? Is the election for Speaker of the Commons a partisan contest? Is it his here in the U.S. for Speaker of the House? I think that's the real difference, Bob, that what we are in the Commons, because it's about holding a position that you're going to become independent and neutral, so you're going to stand away from your political affiliation, and I'm going to hand in my membership if I'm successful. So people realise this is for all parties. This isn't organised on party lines. And for once, the whips of the political parties are not involved, or they claim they're not involved, let me say that. <laughs> so the answer was, I've been the deputy speaker, I've been there for nine years, so I'd have the longest apprenticeship in history. Only the king had a longer apprenticeship than I did to get his job. <laughs> but it was about that job not being partisan, far from it. It was about my, my ability to sell myself to all the political parties. And it was 50% plus one, and I became the speaker. And that's how it worked. And I've got to say, completely different than the system we have out here. The fact is, I always say, if you're going to enter into a competition, it's about being neutral, playing a straight line down the middle. And I was willing to accept that. And I've got to say, it wasn't easy. Uh, when you've been a member of a political party or a dynasty in some respects, like I have, I had to give up the membership. But I knew what the rules were. And I accept the rules, and I stand by the rules, and that's the way I try to be the speaker. And you resigned from the Labour Party once you were elected. Absolutely, and I've been around the Labour Party all my life, you know, and, and that was interesting, you know. My father first stood for the Labour Party way back, yes, 1964, and I was that child of a five-year-old delivering election leaflets, so I knew what it was like to be in a... a Part of an organization called the Labour Party. I was that child Labour. I've got to tell you, I was very unsuccessful. My father didn't get elected. So it took me a little bit longer for him to get elected than I saw. 
Well, there we are. But 215, a margin of 215 votes is a lot more than 50% plus one. It is, and it's just how the votes were stacked up. The one thing I would say, and I'm, I'm not arrogant, um, far from it, I would try not to be, which is unusual for politicians. What it's about is about knowing the database, working on your data, and trying to analyze it. I'd have the marginal seat. I came in the Labour victory in 1997. I'd taken off a Conservative member of Parliament. He'd been there for 18 years. My seat was never a natural Labour seat, but it's where I'd always lived. And what I knew is that keep good data, work hard, campaign, find where your votes are, you can get elected. So when I decided to stand for Speaker, we'd already analysed where we thought our votes were, where the majority was, so we knew that each round, I was always in front, and I never fell behind. And we just knew it was just a matter of tipping it over, and we tipped it over without thumping majority. So I asked you on the way over, and I think it'd be interesting to tell them, well, when you run for re-election, and there's a general election in Britain in 2024, as there is here, you don't run as a member of the Labour Party or the or as a member of the Tory party. No, I've, uh, I've got an unusual title. I stand as Speaker, Speaker-elect, so it's actually the Speaker's party in that sense. So I'm going to stand as the Speaker and hopefully the, the good people of Chorley, because I'm the MP, I'm still a member of Parliament, I've still got all my parliamentary duties to do representing the constituents of Chorley. And they're the people who have elected me, so they always come first. So I will go to them, I will stand as Speaker-elect, and hopefully they'll re-elect me. Then I will go back to Parliament, where I intend to stand as Speaker again. So the question is, people keep saying, are you going to stand? The answer is, absolutely. But what are the powers of the Speaker of the Commons? And can you describe some notable interactions between MPs and the Speaker? People think the, the Speaker has more powers than they have. The fact is that people think we've got huge powers. I have got powers, don't get me wrong. So in the morning, I have a meeting where I will decide if there's bills going through, I will decide on the amendments that are placed before Parliament, so I will select amendments. We have a thing called urgent questions, something that's very relevant, very topical. I may decide to grant an urgent question. That means the Minister, Secretary of State, has got to come and answer to Parliament. So the, those are the powers that I have. I have control of the chamber, but I don't set the agenda. That is for the government to do. But what I have then is I control who speaks, how long they speak for, and that's my power. Misbehaving MPs, which I don't like using, uh, I have the power to throw them out, um, and that's quite significant. I don't like doing that. I've only ever done it once where I threw two members of parliament out at the same time, and during Prime Minister's questions, well, that is the power of the Speaker. And why do I not like doing it? Because not only do I throw them out, they also lose pay. So for a week, they're without money. So it's a big thing to do. So I don't like doing it, but that's why MPs are well-behaved when, when it comes to the end. You know, do they want to sacrifice the paycheck or do they want to take my, my advice? Behave better and you'll be okay. Surprisingly, they behave better. So those are the kind of powers I have. And of course, I meet with the Prime Minister, I meet with different Secretary of State, Leader of Opposition, I've all this going on. But my main other job is not just sitting in the chair, which is fantastic. Everybody sees me doing Prime Minister's questions, being in the chair. But actually, I'm the chairman of a board. Parliament employs 3,000 people. So 
I have to look after 3,000 people. I have to look after the buildings. I have to ensure that there is a pills settlement to come through for the staff of the House of Commons. I'm involved in negotiating that as well. So the fact is the health and well-being of the people who work there, not just MPs. There are lots of other people that work there. The staff of MPs, the staff of the House of Commons who all got to be looked after. These are the powers that I've also got to. And the other one that keeps me awake at night is the security of the House of Commons. Is ensuring that, don't forget, we've had two MPs murdered. The fact we had a terrorist attack on Parliament. Those that worries are hard. Trying to keep staff of the Commons safe trying to keep MPs, staff and their families safe, and of course, MPs as well. So those are the kind of issues. It's a very broad sweeping powers that I've got. But when it comes down to the chamber, it's quite interesting. The government sets the agenda, but I then control the chamber. Uh, can I ask you why you Please. threw those two MPs out? What have they done? <laughs> <laughs> what they decided to do was challenge the Prime Minister. Prime Minister Johnson was just getting up for Prime Minister's question. And they shouted and bawled and bawled. I gave them an opportunity to stop, and they decided they weren't going to stop. One started as I started to challenge him. The other one started, and it got to a point where something's got to give. And it can't be me. I can't afford to lose my authority because I will never get it back. So the challenge was, somebody's got to win here. I can't afford to lose, and I'm certainly not going to let them win. So the answer was, they had to be thrown out. It was challenging the prime minister. They disagreed with what he said. We all disagree, but you don't ball and shout and hold up the whole of Prime Minister's question. And of course, the chamber was getting angry. They were shouting out, out, out as well. So I didn't need the backing band that I got. I'd sooner just deal with it on my own. What do you say? <laughs> you be quiet for a minute while I deal with this. No, no. What do you say when you throw them out? I just said, look, I'm going to name the honourable gentleman. And I said, I will deal with it at the end of Prime Minister's questions. And I'll read out the script of what I am doing to them. Mm. Uh, so the House of Commons, and I've been there, is often a genuinely contentious debating chamber, especially but not only during Prime Minister's Questions time, which you just referred to. This is, again, very different from the United States, where a president, with the historic exception of Abraham Lincoln on one occasion, never directly answers questions in the Senate or the House chambers or in front of committees. What are the virtues as you see them? of the way the House of Commons regularly calls the leader of the government, the prime minister, and other cabinet ministers to account. That's about scrutiny. That's about holding the government to account. Absolutely right. And you've got to be able to ask the questions. The prime minister is the prime minister of the country. We don't have a president, we have a prime minister. And it's about parliament. He is a member of parliament. He is part of parliament. And the fact is, the prime minister... He should be, and quite rightly, accountable. And what we have is 30 minutes of questions, or some might say 30 minutes of theatre, because it's those MPs' chance to shine on international television when they ask the question. Some will ask something local, because they recognise there's an election coming, they need to get the votes in. Others will go, some will have under questions by the whips, which I would never advise, but that would be my personal advice. Think your own question up, make your own mark, deal with what you think is appropriate. And I think it's the best form of scrutiny that each day a Secretary of State will be held. Secretary of State has to do a full hour. They do an hour of questions. Some they will know, some they won't know. Same with the Prime Minister. He will know who's going to ask a question, but he doesn't know what the question is. So he's going to do a lot of homework. 
And I've got to say with this prime minister, he does a lot of homework. He tries to answer the questions thoroughly. He tries to give a substantial answer. He doesn't fly it. He doesn't try and wing it. He really works hard to give an answer to the MP. You may not disagree with his answer, but at least he works politically hard to ensure there is an answer coming. So it's a tough gig for a prime minister. It really is. The scrutiny's on. The heat's on. If you ever look at the House of Commons chamber, you've got the leader of the opposition on one side and the prime minister on this side, and they have a box in front of called the dispatch box. Ever look at the dispatch box? It's so worn with whoever is the prime minister, they're always rubbing at the, the dispatch box. It's so worn away where the opposition has not got the same were and sir. Okay, it's much easier to ask a question than what it is to answer. Yeah, and if you're a leader of the opposition, you can decide what topic you're going to ask or, or focus on. You can uh, do that without the prime minister having any idea of what it's going to be. And you can sometimes ask him about things that he may not be entire or she may not be entirely prepared for. And, and that's right. The prime minister gets six questions and the uh, six questions to the prime minister. What's interesting is it's the leader of the opposition that's going to ask six questions. Does he ask six in a row or does he want to break it? Go do two sets of three. And my view is I think it's more effective because the prime minister's all geared for that last final question. And if you go on the same subject, he's got into his run. He's got the answers. He's built up the answers. And he's waiting for that sixth question when he knows the leader of the opposition can't come back. And he will absolutely try and throw the knockout punch in to deal with the leader of the opposition. The smart thing to do is maybe ask five questions on one and change the subject completely on the six. Give a soft question, something nice that the prime minister can't disagree with. Sure. It really flows them. So there's tactics that can be played. And of course, the leader of the SNP, who are the third biggest party, they get two questions as well. Every week, two questions from the SNP. But what I try to do and I brought in a system that we've got smaller parties, the Liberal Party, the Nationalist, uh, uh, the Welsh, Plaid Cymru. They are also a small party. The Green Party has one MP. So I tried to do it on a proportional representation that gives them a chance to also ask their questions as well. So they might come once every three weeks, four weeks for the Liberals, and it might be six weeks. But I make sure that there is a guarantee that even the small parties will get a chance to hold the Prime Minister account because that's what it comes back to, accountability. You talked about the security of Parliament, the 3,000 people that you have to be concerned with, the buildings themselves. Where do you live in London? In the House of Commons. <laughs> so I've got a slight interest as well. So I, I literally live, if you think of Big Ben, I live virtually under Big Ben. You know, So I've got to tell you, it's not midnight that keeps me away. It's 2 o'clock for some unknown reason. It's two strikes, not six, not three. It's got to be the two that wakes me up. So, yeah, I'm very lucky. Historically, the speaker has lived in speaker's apartments where we hold receptions, we hold dinners, visiting heads of state. Speaker Pelosi came. We had a big lunch for Speaker Pelosi when she came over. And I host events within Parliament. So I literally have the state rooms and I live above that. That's where my office is. And that's where my team are all based in speaker's house. So I've got to say, it's not a bad address to have in London. <laughs> What is the address? House of Commons. <laughs> I still view one A. Let me turn to some substantive things. I think this is fascinating the way the system works, but I want to get to some substance too. Uh, the special relationship between Great Britain and the United States has endured at least since the era 
of FDR and Winston Churchill. How real, how strong, and how important is the special relationship in the 21st century world? I think quite rightly, it's stronger than ever, and it must remain so. That special relationship is so important to us. As we say, it's only across the pond to the UK, but it's those historical links. But it's the links that we stand shoulder to shoulder. Conflicts around the world. Who are always going to be there? Who are going to be at one? It's going to be your country and our country. And that's so, so important. Where would Ukraine be if it wasn't for America and the United Kingdom? Where are the rest standing up? Yes, there's a lot of talk. Yes, some support. But the reality is, it is that strong support for each other that we stand shoulder to shoulder against the aggressors in Russia. And it's the right thing to do. And when I believe that we are on the right, when we stand together, it's because we believe in the sovereign rights of other countries. It's because we believe in democracy. That's what holds us together. And we certainly stand against those countries who do not believe in our values. And nothing should ever, ever divide us. We should always be united. Yeah, we might have the odd fallout. Who knows? Might be a bit of a problem on a trade deal. But when it comes to the big issues, we are one in defense, in support of each other, in technology transfer. When it came to our new nuclear submarines, it was with the help of the design that you gave us. And it's our design specialism that we hand by. And it's so, so important that we keep that special relationship. Because in the end, the might of China, if we aren't as one, we will all be divided. We've seen it in Europe. Who would have thought? As you said, it goes back to Churchill at the Second World War, that we stood shoulder to shoulder on different conflicts all the way through. And quite rightly, because we do not believe in aggressors. We do not believe that despots who do not believe in our values should succeed. And it's so, so important that we continue to work together, we continue to support each other, and the special relationship should stay in place and must remain in place. And that's why I had a very special relationship with Speaker Pelosi. We built on that. We built on knowing each other, getting to know each other and supporting each other. And yes, you've got a new speaker. And we will meet and we will get together. And that's what I will always say, because I believe in the two countries working closer together. Wherever we can, I will be there to ensure we do that. Hence why I wanted to be here today. I just want to show you my feelings for your country, the importance of this country, and the value that I place upon it. Uh, party discipline is much higher in the Commons than in the U.S. Congress. Uh, yet before you were Deputy Speaker uh, and then Speaker, as a Labour member of Parliament, you disagreed, for example, with the Labour government on an issue like tuition fees, which until then did not exist for English students attending English universities. Can you talk about that and about the permissible parameters of dissenting from what the government of the day wants when that government is your own party? Well, I think it's about having a bit of independence and having the strength and the backbone that if something is wrong, you don't support it just because somebody tells you to support it. I think the reality is, and I think Top Up is, is a great example. You're absolutely right. I believe in education. I believe investing in the future and the future of the people here. And we didn't have a fee. We didn't have top-up fees. In fact, the Labour government went out of its way to say, 
not only will we not introduce top-up fees, we will legislate to ensure that top-up fees will not be brought in. That was a pretty clear pledge. And if I had to face the people of Chorley, and I put it in literature to say, the Labour Party's position is no top-up fees and we'll legislate against it, I'm not 18 months later going to vote fast into saying, oh, by the way, what I told you then, I no longer stand for. I'm a person who believes in the principle of politics. I believe that you've got to be able to look somebody in the eye and be honest with them. If they, even if they don't agree with you, I think you've got to be honest and say what you believe in and what you will do. So there was no way that I was going to be made out to be a liar by supporting something that I promised that I wouldn't vote to introduce. And it was a very clear decision. I didn't go to my way to vote against my party because I believe in my party. I think that was one, Bob, and you're absolutely right, so top-up fees, very clear. The other one was the privatisation of the National Health Service. And I'll be quite honest with you, I believe in free health, I believe in the National Health Service, the backbone of the Labour Party. It was the Labour Party that brought the NHS in. It was something I'm so passionate about. To start privatising chunks of that was not acceptable. So I also voted against that. Guess what? The Labour Party dropped it after that as well. So we had some success. Uh, you've also publicly opposed your former party's proposal to replace the House of Lords with an elected second chamber. Seems kind of undemocratic, doesn't it, to have a House of Lords that has at least the powers that it does and, and, and can slow down the commons if it wants. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's a poor question. And I actually voted to abolish the House of Lords. So, you know, I've got a bit of history as well. So let's look at why do I not want an elected second chamber? And I think that's the key question. Forget, reform the House of Lords, we can all agree on. We can do it different ways. We can have a unicameral system where the House of Commons has complete control. But actually, what we've got at the moment, to put an elected chamber in its places, who has primacy? The House of Commons or the House of Lords? They then will become elected. So one house is challenging the other house. And of course, as we know, one house can be elected one way, the house can be elected the other way. Business never moves. You end up with a lockdown, and that will be fatal. When your government, which is parliament, is elected, they are the decision makers. They are the ones that decide what the policies will be and what the future of the country will be, because we've been elected. What the House of Lords will do is reform bills to take out the parts that don't work. They will then send it back. But in the end, they recognise that supremacy is with the House of Commons. And that must always remember. If you have an elected chamber, they're quite rightly going to say, we have a mandate from the people, so we are not going to support your bill. We're going to block your bills. And nothing happens. Nothing moves forward. And that's the reason why I certainly don't want a, a second elected chamber. What I will have is reform of the chamber, or let's have a unicameral system, but certainly don't give opposition to the House of Commons. Because in the end, we have the sovereign right. We are elected. We are the ones that decide what the future of the country is. I don't want some of the chamber chipping in down the road. Two, two elected chambers blocking each other? Exactly. Uh, sounds, sounds, sounds kind of familiar to... <laughs> I didn't want to hurt too much. Uh, you have another job. You've been a member of the Privy Council since 2013. What is the Privy Council? What does that post entail? Uh, 
very good question. So a Privy Council, it's um, when Her Majesty was there, I was created PC, a Privy Councillor. So basically, when legislating goes from the House of Commons, it's got to be signed off by the Privy Council. The Privy Seal is applied and members of the Privy Council are asked to turn up. I'll give you an insight. Um, it's quite interesting that I, when, when I was sworn in and it was with Her Majesty and the Queen, I came there and the bills. There are no seats. You were all stood up. Bills don't take long to get passed in there. <laughs> it's a pretty quick way of getting bills through when you have no seats. And of course, the other thing that privy councillors do, it when Her Majesty died, you've got to, the new king has to be sworn in. And privy councillors are invited to witness the new king being sworn in and signing the acceptance to become the monarch of the country. So those are the kind of things that a privy councillor do. Really, it's a, it's a, to be honest, it's a rubber stamping outside. But also information is shared on Privy Council terms so you can be briefed at a higher level because you're a Privy Council than being a member of Parliament. So it gives you an insight into areas that you won't be told about. So it, if we take sensitive information on Afghanistan, um, as, as we know, as we go around to write all different issues around, I will be briefed as a Privy Councillor at a much higher level than a member of parliament. So it's that insight to the different level. You, you briefly mentioned trade when you were talking about the special relationship. Uh, what are the prospects on either side for a trade deal between the United States and the United Kingdom? I'm very disappointed, I'll be quite honest. The first thing I wanted to do was ensure that my wish was that the first trade deal to have been signed was between the two countries. Special relationship, let's have a special trade deal as well. It didn't happen. Where do I think it's going now? Nowhere at the moment. Lots of talk, lots of meetings. But the reality is that you've got an election coming, we've got an election coming, and nobody wants to be held out on whether it was a good deal or a bad deal. So I just don't see anybody moving forward to after the next two elections, one for you and one for us. I think then we've got to sit down, get it sorted, get this deal done. If we can't get a trade deal done, who can? So let's get on with that. But I recognize I don't think there will be much movement till the next election. You were also pretty eloquent about Ukraine. Is there opposition in Parliament to uh, supporting Ukraine? Is there's opposition here in the U.S. Congress from some quarters to, to aiding the Ukrainians? There is no outspoken voices. I've got to be honest that uh, we had the president in a week ago. He came to Parliament to speak to us. And Westminster Hall is a huge hall. It's where the Queen was laying in state. And the fact is that not many people can fill that. President Obama could do it. Nelson Mandela could do it. The Pope did it. And I've got to tell you, the President of Ukraine did it. And what should was unity, because it was the House of Lords, House of Commons coming together and we filled it. I have never seen or witnessed an applause like it. I led him in as we walked through the door. Everybody was cheering, clapping, just wanted to be there for that moment. It was one of those special moments that says, I was there. I witnessed it. And people will talk about that, who was in that chamber that day. And we absolutely filled Westminster Hall. Was there a division? No. And I was so surprised. If there are, it will be a whisper because they certainly are not speaking out. People are so supportive. 
because this is Europe again. As I say, I hark back to the Second World War. We've witnessed what happens with people who are aggressive, the fact that they believe they have the right to invade sovereign countries. You cannot afford to lose this. And that's why it's so critical. And that's what I believe unites the politicians of all the parties within Westminster. They are at one on the issue of Ukraine. And so it must remain. And I've got to say, between both, both countries, I said, we are, I'm quite rightly, upholding the rights of the people of Ukraine. We cannot afford to lose. Who will be next? Would it be Poland? Also, we have other people who watch us and witnesses. It's called China. And China, quite rightly, are watching this with great interest. What is the strength of NATO? What is the strength of Europe? And people reflect on how we deal with it and how we support. As I say, we cannot afford to allow Ukraine to fall and we certainly cannot stop the support we've got there. But your question's quite right. Westminster is at one and it doesn't happen very often. And it's certainly not the case here. There's significant dissent here. Uh, In fact, there was one public opinion poll that said 49% of people thought we should go all out to help Ukraine and 48% of people thought we shouldn't. Uh, How do we do this without inviting a confrontation with the Soviets over the Soviets, excuse me. Well, they kind of are now. They kind of are, actually. <laughs> Putin kind of is, uh, uh, and I think aspires to be. Uh, how do we do that without inviting a confrontation with the Russians, who, after all, do have 10,000 nuclear weapons? They do indeed. And I hope that peace could be achieved. I don't want to see bodies bags going back to Russia. I don't want to see people in Ukraine being murdered but also that want to see the fall of the rights of the people of Ukraine. And I think it's, it's absolutely critical that here we are. We aren't involved. We are supplying arms. It is the Ukraine people who have decided, and quite right, fighting for their freedom. And what we're doing is supporting that freedom. And I think you've got to be. You, there's only Russia that can think they have a right to invade that country. Nobody, nobody with any confidence would say, who next and who where does this end? And you're right, they have nuclear weapons. That's the end for all of us, including Russia. Even Russia, with a despot like we've got, I don't think he's willing to gamble at that level. But I would also say that when Russia went into Afghanistan, it was the people of Russia that stopped the occupation of Afghanistan when the body bags kept coming back. The people of Russia said, enough is enough. And what I hope is, it will be the people of Russia who once again says, we don't like this leadership. We don't believe in what you're doing. And they actually want to say, enough is enough. We want peace. We want peace for Russia. And we want peace in Europe. And that's what we've all got to achieve. It's been 70 years since there was a coronation in Britain. Uh, there's going to be one next May, May 6th. Uh, What's it going to feel like? Is it going to, I mean, are all the old traditions going to remain? It, it's very interesting. We're still working on that way, speaking with the palace. Uh, what role and how much of us do they want us to play in a sense? I've got a speaker's gold coach that's drawn by four horses. You know, it's a huge thing. It's 350 years old. It's one of the most magnificent coaches in the world. Are we going to really have to use that? The question is, I think not. But what we are going to do is put the coach on display, even not going to use it. Uh, what I do know is that we will, 
I will be going across for the coronation. I think we will be escorted across rather than being taken this golden speaker's carriage. Uh, is that it comfortable? remain for the tourists to look at. Is it comfortable? Uh, right in? <laughs> I dread to think it will be. I, 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 I think it looks pretty cramped. It's, it's pretty impressive. Don't go wrong. It's all gold, all bling. And I've got to say, we'll let people see it, but it's not one that I, I think I can walk from the House of Commons to Westminster. It might be that we're, we're going to have the mace walking in front of me. We're going to have the speaker's chaplain, Helen, who's the speaker's secretary. We'll be all in a row dressed in all the finery that this palace wants us to wear. So I think the golden cloak will come out. They will be, will be led by a lifeguard. So I think there's going to be parts of it that will be a twist on what we've had previously. And what we do know is that, uh, the last coronation, 8,000 people got into Westminster Abbey. It's very difficult to tell people there's only 2,000 this time. And I've got to tell you, I have a lot of upset MPs who think quite rightly, well, we got a ticket last time, not that they remember. So surely they must get a ticket this time. So I'll tell you what, the ticket touts will have a free-for-all if they can get hold of a couple of them at any price. Anyone want a ticket? No. But it's going to be coronation that people remember. It's about people coming together, and it's going to bring the country together. We're going through a dark period. And we'll need something to lift it. And I genuinely believe the coronation will do that. Uh, the king will be there and I think the country will celebrate. And it's going to be quite amazing. And I'll be very lucky that I'll take part of it. Uh, so Westminster Abbey holds 8,000 people, but they only it want 2,000. No, it did for the coronation of a queen. They put scaffolding, they put levels all the way up. Health and safety, you couldn't even dream of doing that in these days. And it's down to health and safety. We know you to blame for this. Uh, but it is about keeping people safe. So literally can get about 2,000 people on the floor. And that's what it's been. And of course, visiting heads of states will be coming from every country. So there ain't many tickets left over. Yeah. Uh, to go back to Parliament, when you were elected Speaker, you pledged that the House of Commons would change for the better, that you would conduct yourself in a transparent way. What did you mean and what reforms did you take to realize those pledges? Well, I think, first of all, the transparency is about the thing called the commission, the board that I chair. It's about knowing what we discuss. People never knew what we were discussing and they never knew what the answers were. And part of was opening that up to be more transparent. Also, actually, allowing the trade unions within power who represent the staff to actually come each to each meeting to say what their issues were, what their problems were on behalf of staff. That never happened before. So that was part of changing that making sure that my door is open. It's open to anybody who works in Parliament. What I say is, if you've got an issue, you've got a problem, come and see me. Don't moan, don't talk about something outside. Come and see me in my office. And mine's a very open office that staff come in, staff can come with the problems and issues. I wanted to make sure of that. Also, it was about ensuring that we change the culture within Parliament. That is proving slightly more difficult, but we are certainly working on that. I certainly want to believe that if staff have a problem, that they've got somewhere to report it to, that they shouldn't work there in fear. I want to make sure that they can come and see me. We have an independent way of reporting incidents that take place so that people don't know who's reported it. That is all new. We've signed that all off. We've established that way forward. And that was critical. Also about the health and well-being. I've got to tell you, the pandemic played a major toll on everybody whether you're a politician or whether you worked in Parliament. It was about having support of health and well-being. We set up better health and well-being. We've grown that. 
We've got nurses on site. We've got a doctor on site. We've got all the facilities I need. The mental health facilities are there to support everybody who works there. As I say, with 3,000 House of Commons staff, 650 MPs, we've got the staff of MPs to look after. So we've got a big number of people. It's a big organisation that I've got to try and look after. So what I wanted to say is, look, this is my job. It's going to be all. It's going to be transparent. I'm available. I'm going to do the best by Parliament. I want people to say, if you've worked in Parliament, when you leave, by the way, it's a great place to work. I want everybody to be an envy of how we treat people who work in the House of Commons. That's going to be my signature. Was, was during the pandemic, and of course it's, you know, I keep saying that People say, I'm over the pandemic. The problem is the pandemic may not be over us. Uh, was wearing masks around the, the parliamentary estate a big controversial issue or did people just do it? Well, the question is, it's a very good question. The, the fact is that how do we keep parliament working? Because I was determined that parliament must continue. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It was very easy to say to MPs, that's it. Parliament's closed. Come back in six months. Somebody's got to hold the government to account. And what Parliament's about is having accountability. And without Parliament being up, that would never have happened. So what I wanted to do was Parliament doesn't change easily. A thousand years of history doesn't get turned over very easily. The fact that we still write on goatskin on the covers of documents always tells you that we don't change very quickly. And of course, that we still use Norman French tells you that life's not changed very quickly. And we'd have to go back to 1066 for the introduction of all that. So when I say Parliament must continue, but not in the way that we can have everybody in Parliament, to try and cram in all those MPs in the chamber, that you cannot get 650 MPs in the chamber, you can only get about 450, and the rest are all crammed either upstairs or up the gallery, up the steps, wherever you can be, you'll see MPs all crammed in. Well, during the pandemic, I couldn't do that. So we said, we've got to do remote working. What we're going to do is have the opposition leader, the prime minister, a couple of whips, myself, Helen and Clarks, that's all we're going to do. And we're going to run parliament remotely. And we managed to do that within 48 hours. The fact that we will still speak French, normal French, but actually, we achieved something that was fantastic. So we literally went to remote working. And the fact is, we were going all around the country. And they were having MPs holding the government to account, asking prime ministers questions. And I got even so successful, I introduced remote voting. Well, I've got to tell you, remote voting, it was wonderful. MPs were thinking for themselves. Nobody was telling them how to vote. Who would have thought that MPs could think for themselves? It was brilliant. The whips came to see me. I had a delegation of the different political parties. Mr. Speaker, we can't have remote voting. We've got to stop remote voting. We don't know they're going to vote. <laughs> so they managed to have a bit of free thinking and we stopped the remote, vo remote voting. It really did work. So what we then went to, where you could actually assign your vote to a whip who will vote on your behalf or then the other thing that we brought in because we used to have the system where you had to give your name in and they put a line on a on an iPad through your name and it took forever. So what we then went to is just a bit like scanning to a supermarket where you scan a can to tell you how much it is. So literally you get your pass and you just walk through, touch it and you vote it. 
So we speeded up the voting system. We could separate people. So we managed to achieve that as well. And it, and it proved that we can do things when we have. I've got to tell you, I am very, very lucky with the House of Commons staff. They were amazing during the pandemic. They made things happen. Things that they weren't ever expecting we'd ever see in our lifetime. We did, as I say, 48 hours, we were fully operational. And that's thanks to the staff. So three prime ministers in one year, uh, stressful time for the Conservative Party, certainly. Uh, was it stressful for you as this whole process went along? It, it's interesting. I, I always say two monarchs, three prime ministers, four chancellors, all in three months. Three months. And when, when the end was coming of the first of those prime ministers, my worry was that it was putting parliament in a very, very embarrassing position. Ministers were resigning. Secretary of State were resigning. And of course, as, as we said earlier, we had questions each day. And a, a minister I know very well, Minister of State, came past me. I said, I thought you might have resigned. He said, Lindsay, when I finished these questions, I've resigned. He said, if I hadn't, there was nobody to do the question. That's how bad it had got that we was nobody to come to the dispatch box. And it made us a laughing stock. Thankfully, we're back on the straight road ahead. We can see that we're calming it all down. Because in the end, with challenging times, and the last thing you need is no government in front of you. As I say, the benches were empty, the dispatch box was empty. It was a very painful time for democracy. As I say, that's now behind us. We now go forward. We have a different type of prime minister, and people are resigning. Thank goodness. They've got behind him, and hopefully we can go through the election, next election and try and ensure that people have faith back in democracy. Because when you've no ministers, how can you have faith in a government? Isn't there a whole gigantic rebuilding process going on in, in, in the parliamentary estate? And how long is it going to take? Well, it depends what we decide. And we've been, umming and I, how do we do it? Because people were led to believe, don't worry, two billion pounds, five to six years, parliament will be refurbished. The reality is it is not the case. It is a major construction, and major, major construction takes a lot longer. The fact is, what we need to know is, what does Parliament need to make? You know, a Parliament that can work for the future. How do we make it workable for the next 100 years? And Parliament needs to take that decision. And it's a tough decision for a member of Parliament. All MPs go in, they want to be in the House of Commons chamber. So if we move out, we've no House of Commons. The other thing is, is it feasible to do it in two stages? So we maybe the Lords move out and we move there and we do the House of Commons and we move back. Who knows? That's what happened during the Second World War right. when the when the House of Commons chamber got bombed. So there are different ideas, different views. What we've got to do is get Parliament to make that decision. And it is struggling to get that decision on the floor of the House. So in the meantime, and you're quite right, I'm getting on with doing the work. So if anybody visits London, and you go and look at Big Ben, the Elizabeth Tower. It's spectacular. It's absolutely been completely renovated. That icon, a world icon, you can now see it without scaffold. It is amazing. So in the meantime, while MPs are talking about it, I'm going on with it. The cast iron roofs we've just refurbished. I'm doing the Northern Estate. So while they keep talking, I keep doing chunks of work. So who knows at some <laughs> point we might get there. The danger is if you move out, you could be out for 20 years. And it could cost you 15 billion pounds. So if you need to keep ownership of it, MPs are going to have to make the decision. 
Do we move out? I'll do it in stages. Are there health and safety reasons for doing some of this? I mean, is some of it just falling apart after all these well, years? Well, some of it, and it's interesting. Somebody says, oh, it's, it's Victorian. Well, parts of it's nearly a thousand years old, and that's the best part. So I've got to tell you, they were much better building properties a thousand years ago than what they are now. <laughs> so we've got a part that's almost a thousand years. We've got the Victorian part that was built after the fire of 1834. But of course, we've got the House of Commons Chamber. That's a 1950s build. It's not even Victorian. So there's different bills. And over the years, people have played with it, altered it, renovated it. We just need to know how bad is it? What do we have to do to make it safe and make sure it's fit for the next hundred years? The reality is, like every bill, most buildings of a certain age have got asbestos. This building's got asbestos. That's the serious part we've got to get right. And we've got to make sure that we do that in an effective way that people that say we must never ever put people at risk. And we're just going to make the right decisions. But we've got to get on and make a decision. The sooner House decides, the sooner we can get on with the job. And one, one more question about Parliament. The King never comes to the House of Commons, the monarch, right? Right. Where did that start? Well, we are, he's forbidden. Absolutely. But of course you were late. You had a revolution. You had to wait a lot longer. We'd already done that. We, we got that back. Do you know, you talk about the American revolution, the French revolution, the Russian revolution. We tried it first. And what we did, the king stormed into power and the speaker in the chair, he, sorry, the king stormed in. The speaker sat in his chair. The king walked up, didn't even doff his hat. He demanded that the MPs who'd spoken treason against the king must be handed over. And Speaker Lenthal was very, very brave because he said, I have no eyes to see or tongue to speak unless this house otherwise tells me. So basically said to the king, get lost. I'm not giving in to you. So the king closed down parliament. We had a revolution. We chopped the king's head off. We reminded him that he can't come into our House of Commons. This is how we behave. He went away. Of course, it didn't quite work out. Cromwell's son didn't have a good experience in Ireland, which we've still got the problems today, thanks to that. But what we did have, the royal family came in, and the deal was the king never comes into the House of Commons. He doesn't come to the gym. So he waits in the House of Lords. He sits on his throne there, but he's not allowed up our end. Nope, you've got to stay down there. And when it's time for the... Queen's speech or the King's speech, which the government writes. Yes. The King doesn't write it. The Queen doesn't write it. The House of Commons processes to the House of Lords. Does indeed. And I'll leave that procession down. The big question that always is interesting, of course, Speaker Lenthal never lost his head. And surprisingly, Speaker Lenthal didn't sign the death warrant for the King either. So he must have said, well, you saved me. I'm not going to do this to you. But I've got to tell you about the Speaker. People always say to me, when you're elected speaker, why is it they pull you to the chair? That's quite historical. Really, you want to run to the chair because you've just been elected speaker. But the idea was that seven speakers were all beheaded. So it wasn't a comfortable job. So you actually you didn't want the job. So you had to be pulled because nobody wanted to possibly lose their head. And of course, the most famous of those was Thomas More. You know, the writer of Utopia. Thomas More was there, you know, the crowd no. He was the man that lost his head, along with many other speakers. So it wasn't a good job to have in history. I've got to say, thankfully, they don't do it very often these <laughs> days. <laughs> One final question from me, and then I'm going to turn it over to them. You were first elected to your borough council at the age of 22. You defeated an incumbent conservative councillor. 
Well, and then you got elected to parliament in 1997. What advice would you offer students who hope to enter politics at a young age? And what advice, if any, did you receive? Very good question. Because, look, if you want to make a difference, you've got to be inside. LBJ was right. It's about peeing out of the tent. What I say is, look, think about it. You want to make a difference, get involved in politics. And people who say, oh, it's boring. It's not boring. Because actually, you can make the difference. You can change things. Do it for the right reasons. Believe, have the passion, whether it's a local level, look at what you need in your community. Look how you can help people. Or whether it's on the national stage, look what you can do there to support your country. Making lives better. Policy is about helping people. Trying to change it for the right reasons. And I always say to people, if you've got passion, use that passion. Get involved. Make the difference. Be part of a political system. Join the team. Get involved with the party. Make the difference. When you say, well, they won't listen to it. Yes, they will. You can do it. You can achieve things. You can actually pass laws that benefit everybody. You can be part of that legislation. You can be in the, and I always say to people, don't be afraid. Get on with it and do it. And I always worry about democracy. Democracy is only as good as the next generation that's coming through. And we've got to bring people through. We should have no barriers to anybody who wants to get into the political system. I always want to support young people. I want them to get involved. And I'm passionate about making sure that we are the healthy democracy in the long term, not the short term. How'd you decide to run as a, as a 22 year old against an incumbent counselor who was of the other party? Well, he was a high flying Tory. In fact, it probably could have easily been the next Tory candidate. And I lived in the village and like a village, they didn't think I could win. So they said, Oh, let him have a run. Don't worry. He can't win it. The problem was I did win it because we got the young people to vote. We got everybody excited. We can make this happen. You have to be 21 to stand. So I got elected at 22. My worry was I was the youngest counselor for years and years and years. And when I left to go to Parliament in 97, believe it or not, I was still the youngest, one of the, one of the youngest counselors. I said, this will never, ever happen again. I went out and recruited lots of young people. I got young labor up and running in Charlie. And my record has been broken five times. We've had three 19 year olds being elected into Chorley Council because I was determined, look, I'm not ageist, but young people need that voice. And I got them in there. And I certainly believe it's been good for Chorley. And the one thing it's proved, that young people have got the energy, the charisma, and they can make things happen. My father was a long-distance truck driver and another truck crashed into him. We had just started this new phase of our relationship. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. We hadn't figured it all out, but we were making steps. Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. Okay, I think I'm going to open this up to questions. Hello, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. My name is Mayor Wilson. I'm a political science major third year. 
And as I'm here to here, remember on January 6, 2021, here in the United States, we experienced an interruption on our nation's capital building. And you mentioned that one of your biggest concerns is the safety of the House of Commons and all the staff people working there. And I know, at least for me and my family and everyone we know, that was one of the serious experiences and threats to American democracy that has happened in my lifetime. Um, of course, made worse by the elements of white supremacy that were interlaced in the entire event. And so I'm curious about your perspective on the reaction by our leadership to the incident on January 6th, what European, how we reacted to it is. And then also, given the political climate in the United Kingdom, could anything like that ever happen there? And if it were to ever happen, how would your leadership react? Lots of questions. Let me try to stay. First of all, capital L was a worry for me. It was a worry for democracy all around the world. And as in Brazil, we'd seen it again. So the first thing I did was speak speak closely and show our solidarity. This should never happen. How could it happen and why? When I began to look at the security report a couple of weeks after, I wanted to check those failings that happened there would they happen within the Westminster Parliament? I'm going to say, hopefully not. And I don't believe it would happen. Have I got procedures in place if, if there was a mob heading there? Yes. Have we got somebody to board to respond to it? Yes. And we can learn a lot from what went wrong. What I would say is that I don't believe politicians would inspire or support mob rule to attack the home of democracy. What I'm bothered about is that you could have a mob on something different that tries to challenge by storming Parliament. And that is always going to be a worry for all of us. So it's about having standoff. It's having the support of making sure you have the people that you can call on to put the protective ring around it as well. And what I'd say is, am I comfortable? If anything keeps me awake at night, it's security. And I've got to be honest, it keeps me awake. We have lost two MPs, one to terrorism, Lone wolf. The other two are white supremacist. Lone wolf. And if anything at the moment is more challenging, it's the white supremacists. They worry me. They have great concerns. A neighbouring MP was going to be beheaded on the street by a white supremacist who wanted to be gunned down by the police. And murdering a member of parliament is not acceptable. Nobody should ever be murdered, don't get me wrong. But the fact that white presumptists believe they have the right to do this. Terrorism also is a threat. Both of them and lone wolves are our biggest threats to society because you, they're very hard to trace, very hard to know it's going to happen. The difference between the United Kingdom and your country is we don't have weapons. We don't have access to weapons. And that is our saving grace. And because we haven't got that, the challenge is much harder. So the challenge is that the attack that took on Parliament it was tragic, that people were run down by a vehicle, because a vehicle is the weapon of choice when you haven't got guns. So innocent people were knocked down and killed, and the vehicle ran into the railings, but they were too strong. Unfortunately, and this is where we had to learn a lot, I called the vision for the church. So the gates opened to let the ministerial cars in. He ran into Parliament 
and they literally stabbed to death our policeman who was defending us with his bare hands. And that was a terrorist. So we know we're always going to be under threat. Do I believe the systems we have in Parliament are strong enough? We always reflect. We don't sit back because we think they're good. We're always looking and talking to everybody. I was with the LAPD yesterday saying, how do you deal with County Hall and things like that? And just looking at sharing knowledge, how you deal with terrorism, whether it's white supremacists, wherever it comes from, we've got to be able to defend it. And it's a real difficult getting the measures right because I want people to access Parliament. I want people to freedom because Parliament is the people's Parliament. So people's got to be able to come in, but I've also got to make sure people are safe. My bigger worry is that the strength of Parliament means that the threat moves. So the two MPs were murdered, were not murdered in Parliament. They were murdered back in their constituency or districts. And that is a frightening part. So my security isn't just about Parliament. It's how do we protect those families and those MPs away from the estate as well. And I take it very, very seriously. And we have this major threat. And it's a threat that crosses across the Atlantic between two. White supremacists talk to each other. They work together. We bound organisations. In this country, you don't because of freedom and speech. That is very worrying. In the same way, I'm very concerned about gun laws. And I'll come over here next. Uh, we're honored to have you here in Los Angeles. I believe your prime minister has a condo in Santa Monica. Uh, <laughs> has he got a green card? I'm only joking. But one of the contributions that Americans made to the English language is gerrymandering. And I have never heard that as a controversy in the context of UK politics. And I wondered how... It seems like in a parliamentary system where the prime minister is elected by the parliament, how the district lines are drawn is even more a critical factor than it is in a bicameral system like we So I just wonder how the UK's handle uh, the issue of draw, uh, line, how are the lines drawn for parliamentary constituency? When are they done? Who does it? And have you had any, um, any issues about that? Yes. <laughs> um, so how are, how are boundaries drawn? Well, they're drawn by the Electoral Commission. And I actually chair the Electoral Commission, a boundary commission. It's chaired by the Boundary Commission. And the boundaries are drawn. And it's done on weight of numbers of electors. And what we, what we're trying to do is work within the tolerance of 5%. So at the moment, my constituency has roughly got 79,000. I'm too high. So they're going to chop some off me to bring it to a lower level. So the average will be about 70, 75,000 electors. So each country's, each constituency is meant to work on that basis. We will have an anomaly, say, somewhere remote like Scotland, because of the sheer distance, you might have a smaller majority, but it will be very rare where you will allow a smaller majority. So they're all within a tolerance. So they're basically drawn on that. And that should not be interfered with by politicians. How do I feel about it? Very happy. My constituency is virtually as it was before the new boundaries have been assessed. So I, I can't, I can't grumble. They almost took away one part of my constituency to give me another part. That made me very unhappy. And there was nothing even I could do about it. And I chair it over here. And thank you so much for speaking today. It's a great honor and privilege to hear you. My question is about how. Uh, the UK government has a very rich history and legacy 
Uh, that's a very uh, large source of historical and national pride. Recently, there has been some discussion of changes, such as the monarch's relevancy moving forward, the House of Lords and their role, as well as Scotland's future in the United Kingdom. How do you see these sentiments uh, evolving through the time to the next election and beyond? To be honest, I don't see any change between now and the next election. Only on any of them, the mother has said that takes place later this year. The coronation will take place. Is there an appetite for something different? No. To be quite honest, absolutely not. And when I say about the House of Lords, it's quite interesting. I hold surgeries for people within my constituency. People come and see me. He's not a doctor, but that's what we call them that. (laughs) If people's got a problem, I try and solve the problem. So people are booked in to see me on Friday night. I'm going back from here. I'll be back up in Chorley. People, I'll be sat down with people in the area discussing their issues and problems. Believe it or not, nobody's been to see me in 15 years to say, get rid of the Lords or get rid of the royal family. And I think that's the reality. I think the Scottish question is more interesting. At the moment, we've seen the opinion polls move away from independence. So I think that'll go a little bit quieter. The polls are quite clear now that they want to remain part of the United Kingdom. That swings with how it works. At the moment, there's been a pushback within that, you know, for, for that referendum. And when you know you're not going to win, you ain't going to push for something. So I think at the moment, none of that will happen and certainly won't happen before the next election. I don't think it will happen thereafter either. Go ahead. Um, I wanted to thank you for coming. Thank you. What stands out in this meeting is how eloquent you are and how lively you speak with the audience. And I was wondering if this is something that you were always very good at or something that you developed perhaps. Throughout- I, I, I think somebody else ought to ask that. <laughs> Look, I, I love engaging with people. I think there's nothing better than meeting people. Pandemic, my biggest error was on the pandemic was I wasn't seeing people. I wasn't interacting with people. You can interact online, but there's nothing like being here today. To me, this is real interaction. Have I got passion? Yes. Because I believe in my job. I believe in democracy. You know, it's the one thing that I cherish so much. You know, I've got to be careful. It's Valentine's Day in my wife. But I've got to tell you, I really do have the passion for politics. Have I lost any? No, absolutely not. I've always felt this way. And, you know, I come from a political household. My father's still in the House of Lords. My daughter is trying to run the next election, much against my better wishes. Well, that's her choice. I, I thought you wanted young people to go into politics. I didn't say how old she was. But yeah, you know, it's about that. And so I've got the passion. I want to inspire others to have the same passion. I want people to believe in it. I want people to get involved because it's, I believe it's something so precious to us. We cannot afford to lose it. So you are the future. I'm not. Back over here. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And I learned so much from what you've been saying. My name is Sarah. I'm a master's student in diplomacy, so I'm very interested in foreign policy. And um, I know that in the past, you are part of the Labour Party, where Jeremy Corbyn, unfortunately, ran a campaign that was, I don't want to say it was anti-Semitic, but there were some comments made here and there. And I'm wondering, first of all, how that's changed since the last year, but as well as in relation to the relationship between the UK and Israel, especially the Abraham Accord peace agreements, if you've seen any children or where you that going? Very, very good questions. And the fact is, let me just say, my father's formed the Labour Friends of Israel. So, you know, let, let's start by that. 
my view is a child that's, who dies who's Palestinian or Israel, there is something fundamentally gone wrong in the system. I'll be quite honest. I believe the, the, the right of Israel to exist, it's been there and it must continue to be there. But I also believe in the right of Palestine as well. And it's, it's something that we've got to work with and for peace within the Middle East. I genuinely believe that we have to solve the problem of the Middle East because the rest of the Middle East spills over. And if we can solve that problem, I think we can have a safer and a better future for all. I believe in Israel's right to exist, absolutely. I don't like the government at the moment, I'll be quite honest. But I've got to tell you, when I see a child die, whether it's Palestine and Israel, something has gone wrong. And it's something that I believe we can do more, both America and the UK, to bring that peace forward. And recognition, Palestine, is so, so important. We all talk about it, but we never do it. But we've also got to give bigger reassurance to Israel. And we've got to make sure that they feel that not only are they protected, but they are supported and they have the right to exist. Over here, thank you for being here. I'm trying to Canadian, so we can share this hour. And personally, our fire, the water, water is our only system, a little bit archaic. Um, I think many Canadians would agree with the Indians and our representatives at the meeting. I'm and you said previously that there is no appetite revenge for the parents to see about the margin at all and your system better. I'm just curious what you think the values of having a continuation of the margin in your system by the Marlin Marlin. There's two things. First of all, I think it's for the people of Canada to decide and it is for them to decide whether they want to change. I don't believe there's an appetite from Canada. I'd slightly disagree and say, actually, uh, out of all the major Commonwealth countries, I think, you, you know, I think Australia would go before Canada. Who knows? It is for the people to decide. I would never stand in the way of the wishes of the people of Canada, Australia, wherever in the Commonwealth. What I would say is that is the choice there. In the UK, what I'm saying is there is no appetite to change the monarchy. What is the benefits? Well, we don't have a president. I've seen the benefits of some presidents I wouldn't want. And I think that puts me off a little bit. The fact is that are they a force for good? Yes, they can be. Do they interfere with the political system? Absolutely not. Do they do some good things? Yes. Is it okay? Yeah, it can be. Well, the fact is that the political system exists. We don't have interference. We don't have despot presidents. And it's something I wouldn't want to see. And as I say, I genuinely believe that I think for the moment, the British public are supportive. We go to the coronation. And I will say now that Canada will have some of the biggest celebrations. And that's, you know, you may personally think that, but I just look and reflect on the welcome that you give to the Rose. You keep inviting them over. You tell me what you get out of it. I'm not sure, but you keep inviting them. And the crowds turn out in bigger numbers than anywhere else in the Commonwealth. So there is something. So there is a very strong affinity between Canada, the UK, and the monarchy. Well, I would say Whatever modern relationship you wish, and I would never, ever advise you other than say, you must decide your own future and destiny. And that is for the people of Canada to decide. And it's as simple as that. And I would always respect whatever you decide. I'm a Democrat. One last quick question. So in my press, I would last in the US, and it's a big problem. Rules, standing by, point landing down in Ukraine, and you face it as Against their homes, where they build, where they drill their own situation there, where they think in Ukraine, and where he's being a product. Stop, probably getting one training with some new missile training. And 
How would you approach that? First of all, people did and still are giving homes to families from the Ukraine who were coming out of the occupied areas and where a lot of the attacks were taking place. Some have gone back, but there's still a lot of Ukraines within the United Kingdom. I'm not aware of the restrictions on travel. I'll be quite honest with that. I have no idea whatsoever. What I will say is I will take it up, though, and I will certainly ask the question when I meet up with the Ukraine ambassador. I want to thank all of you who are here, the people who are with us on Zoom, the people who will see this on Facebook or listen to it on our podcast. But I really want to thank, with actually very deep gratitude, and I think I can say this unreservedly, the person who is currently carrying the title Speaker of the House, who is my favorite Speaker of the House. Thank you. (laughs) Can I just say thanks, Bob? But can I say thanks to you all for turning up today? Thanks for the questions. I've really enjoyed it. I get so much out of it. I go back with an extra spring in my staff. Thanks for doing that for me. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.